When I was seven, I, I ran a bootleg Lego club at my school. I got in trouble because I was charging people uh, 20p, which is basically their um, milk money. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Ross, very well. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Well, thanks for thanks for having me. You are the founder and ex CTO of MuleSoft, the number one integration API platform, or as you also described it, the enterprise Swiss Army knife. Yeah. So before we talk about this impressive story, we want to start with your personal background. Okay. You actually graduated from the University of the West of England with a degree in computer science in 1997. And I just wonder what sort of plans and projects did he have in mind and planned back in the days? So I uh, actually had a lot. So I was, you know, my parents were entrepreneurial, but I, I think um, I always had ideas of um, running projects or, or, or running businesses. For some reason, I was obsessed with it. So when I was seven, I, I ran a bootleg Lego club at my school. Nice. I got in trouble because I was charging people uh, 20p, which is basically their um, milk money, um, to join, and I had to give it back. Um, I also I can say this now because I think it's you know beyond 20 years, but I I got involved in software piracy, and I didn't really do it thinking it was a criminal endeavor. I just thought it was more of a you know computers are amazing. I couldn't get access to software, and um, I started exchanging, uh, selling discs. And I had a disk business, so when floppy disks were, were big before hard drives. Um, and then somebody gave me the idea that I could also distribute software on them as well. And I did that for a while. I, I shut it down, thank goodness. But um, <laughs> it was a misguided attempt at, at finding business. But as, at some point, my, uh, I was receiving so much mail at home. My mum came in with this big box. And she said, I don't know what you're doing. I hope this is legal, <laughs> and I and it and it turns out it wasn't. But um, yeah, I, I shut it down before I went to university. So, um, and then at university, my friends used to tell me like, I, I can't wait to see what you do in twenty years because I, I always had some sort of hustle going on. So a real entrepreneur at heart from so, the yeah. beginning, basically. Yeah. What role did your parents play there? They run a hotel together, so they were also entrepreneurs. Yeah. In what way has that motivated or also inspired you to also pursue this entrepreneurial path yourself? Yeah, you know, my dad, or stepdad really, but really my dad, he, um, he gave me a lot of inspiration just because I, I saw what it was like for someone to have a passion in something and, and work hard at something. And, you know, with hotels... If you're an individual owner and they, they own two, three hotels now too, um, you have to love it because the margins are so narrow that it's more of a lifestyle business where the lifestyle is working super hard. And I used to look at it and I, I often wondered, like, why does this make sense? Why does he do it this way? But it, it forced me to ask those type of questions. And of course, growing up, I worked in all the roles in, in, in the hotel industry and and. So I think it taught me good work ethic as well. Yeah. What did you take away from that experience? Is there anything that really comes to mind and, and stuck with you? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, lots of life lessons. Um, you know, working hard isn't a bad thing at all, as long as you love doing it. I think if you don't love doing it, then 
it's very hard to work hard and why should you spend time on things that you don't really enjoy? Um, the one bit of advice my dad always used to give me was um, never lower your bar, right? And I, I love this concept of you, you never go back on yourself, right? So when you set a bar for something, you set, you know, you set a goal or an accolade, taking a step back any time in life, if you have any control over it, is just a terrible thing to do, right? And, and it just forces you to keep moving forward. And I've sort of lived my life on that, that principle. Awesome. I'm, I'm sure there are many stories that will unfold uh, during this so, interview yeah. about that. I also wonder, you, you talked about the importance of doing something that you love. How do you find this, this passion? You know, even at the young age, you seem to have a passion for entrepreneurship. But for people that maybe feel like they haven't found their passion yet or what they really love, what would you give them as an advice how to uncover and find it? Yeah, it's, um, it's really interesting. I think a lot of people want to fall in love with something straight away. And the reality is you don't. You don't fall in love with anything. Love at first sight, romantic or otherwise, usually isn't really the, the way it works. And you've got, you, know, you pick something that you think you enjoy more than other things. And then it unravels. It, you know, it reveals itself to you as you're working on it. Like I had no idea that I wanted to be a software entrepreneur. Um, I had no idea really I wanted to be in computers or, or you know, even developer back in the day. Um, I just did those things and then, um, you know, you sort of get this building reward as you do them. And then you start to realize, actually, I'm quite good at this. It's a bit like playing sport or anything is you don't love soccer or football until you've played it for a while. And then if you're good at it, you tend to love it. If you're not good at it, like I wasn't, um, you, get to, you get put in goal. <laughs> and, um, and so it, it, I think people are looking for instant gratification on the things that you love. And I think you have to give it time. Um, yeah, my, my one advice to anyone is pick the thing that you like most in, in your life that you do. And if there's nothing that inspires you, then keep looking, right? I mean, right. simple as that. Absolutely. So let's look at what you did after uh, finishing your studies. You then worked for a few corporate jobs in the finance industry. And there you also created your own open source called the Mule Project. What was that all about? How did that start it? Yeah, well... I, I worked, I always knew I wanted to run my own business. It was almost okay. like foretold. I, I remember, you know, for fancy dress at school when I was 11, I dressed up as a yuppie. Like I always had this idea that I would be in finance or somewhere like that and I'd be hustling really. I don't know why it was all these, and the 80s TV programs had a lot of these sort of icons that were always hustling and I just really resonated. Like Ferris Bueller's Day Off for me was, you know, informative of like, oh, you, you really don't have to play by the rules kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, I started working in corporates mostly because I'd studied in, in uh, Bristol. I got a year placement in that West Bank. And so I had banking on my resume as my first job. And it just seemed easier to convince people that I could do more banking or finance related jobs than anything else. Uh, but I, I did it not because I wanted to be in banking and finance. I never looked at those roles as I got to get here, there. All I was doing was learning how people did things to understand how that world worked so that I could figure out my entry point into it. Got it. And then you eventually did with the Mule Project. Yeah, and it, and it happened fairly quickly, right? So I was working, um, you know, Swisspreneur. I was, I, actually, my second job out of college was in Switzerland working for... Swiss Re and also uh, Credit Suisse. And, you know, these are very slow-moving organizations. I didn't learn a ton except that 
you can assume whatever anyone's doing, you can improve it. That was pretty much the big takeaway. <laughs> and then coming from Switzerland, um, you know, I had it in my head. I didn't know where it came from, but I, I had it in my head that I wanted to work at a product company, a software product company, so I could understand how that works, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I went to London after Switzerland and I got a job with a, a middleware company called Spiritsoft. And I had to really convince them that I could do this job because I hadn't really worked on product before and I hadn't worked in sales before I'd been a developer. And so I, I did a deal with them. I said, look, I will take a, a 5% reduction in salary for the first six months. But if you like what I do, you're going to give me 10% after six months and a bump, right? Like it's sort of so that you, you know, I, I move quicker up, up, up into a, a sales role. And within five months, they were very happy with me and, and, and bumped up. But what I learned there was how product companies, you know, ran. Like there's, you know, there's an engineering organization, there's a sales organization, there's this, you know, uh, pre-sales element, you know, does pre and post sales support. And I started to understand, okay, how do you build products? How do you get them to market? What matters? And, and that was, um, at that time, um, you know, I also spotted the idea for, for Mule, which is the software that I built. And where does that name actually come from, Mule? Why did you choose that as a name for your open source project? Yeah, so um, the the short version is uh, Mule is is basically a carryover load, and and it does it does a lot of the the grunt work. And working in banking, I was working in Rabobank in London at the time, and I had three teams of developers building adapters to legacy systems, and. They're all doing the same thing. They're, con- they're connecting to a system, taking data out, doing something with the data, and then putting it to an, into another system. So that pattern seems really obvious, but each team had to do it differently. None of the skills are transferable. Nobody understood the protocols from one to the other. And I just thought it was crazy that we, we had... I mean, this project was nuts. It, it was, it, it was uh, about 12 different teams across different applications, data teams and application teams, and a core architecture team. It took 18 months to build this system of connecting seven systems together. Seven, it doesn't seem like much these days. And it cost 30 million euros. And we got to the end of it, we'd barely done any testing. And I was really advocating to do more testing and they were like, ah, you know, it's super expensive to do DR testing and these things. I was like, why have, like we spent all this money on a DR site, like a disaster recovery site, and we never switched over, right? So we bought all the hardware and the software, but never actually tried to see if, if things fail, would we be able to switch over to this other environment, right? And I remember being at the launch party of this thing and everyone was super excited, like, yeah, it's amazing, you've you know, delivered it, we've got this new trading backbone. I was like, wow, if this is success, then there's loads of room to, to improve because I, I just thought it was ridiculous how hard everything was and and so i you know I, I i started thinking about okay what would i do differently what kind of tools would i want to go and build this and the whole purpose of mule um, and the name really came from taking that donkey work out of integration all that protocol massaging transformation and data manipulation is all hard graft everyone does it over and over again but it has almost zero value it's like the entry point for getting data out of a system so we just uh, took the component pieces of every integration problem and built a new platform around the fundamentals. Awesome. I say we, it was actually me, but uh, but we built Mule Soft as a we. So. 
And, you know, when looking at that and also combining to what you said before, you know, looking for something that you're really passionate about, that is also a lot of fun to you to, to build. And now having that as your own problem that you see there is solving your own problem, the right place to start uh, than a project or a company. I, you know, I, I think it gives you a head start. Like if you don't know what problem you're solving, like if, if you just see a problem and think it'd be great without you either have to do a lot of research to go and understand it. And essentially what you end up doing is becoming, you always have to become the consumer of your product. I think if you're not the consumer um, and you either do it by experience or by research or by, you know, doing, you know, a lot of YC, you know, YC, uh, Y Combinator companies, they have these ideas, they're kind of out of the blue, but they, the ones that are successful end up under, really understanding what the consumer needs, right? That's, that's the, the key element. So the quicker you can get onto that track, the better. And if you, if you're, you know the problem or you've lived the problem, you, you've got a head start. But it's not always the case. I mean, um, you know, in, in a lot of companies, it's even hard to do that, especially deep tech where, you know, what the vision is, is really, I, you know, I dream that this interface could be better or I dream that we could do this in a fundamentally different way. And it's hard to be the consumer of that. But, you know, for most enterprise software, you can be and definitely consumer. Right. And then in 2005, you actually founded Symphony Software, where you built a consulting business around the Mule project. So why was then the right time to actually, you know, start your own company around what you build as an open source? Yeah, I, actually, it was it was interesting. So before that, I was in Australia um, and I was actually working at Atlassian. Um, and so I was an early employee there. And, and actually, what I learned from that, again, I always take my learnings away from working at these companies was Mike and Scott, the, the, the co-founders, just had a really great vision of what company they were going to build right from the outset. I was employee number five or six. And um, I remember joining on the first day and there was this big map on the wall, massive, like A1 size. And there was like two dots on it. And the map was labeled, um, you know, world domination map. And I said, <laughs> kind of laugh, what's this? And um, Scott told me, he said, yeah, this is, this is how we, we're going to track how we get to 50,000 customers. And all the time I was like, all right, yeah, brilliant. I suppose every startup has to have this kind of uh, BHAG. Um, uh, but I, what I realized later was how important it was to set that kind of precedent right up front in the company, right? What they're basically saying is we are going to be a frictionless software company and volume of customers is going to matter more than, you know, concentration of enterprise customers which means we build the software and the product and the onboarding experience very differently from an enterprise uh, software product. And I learned a lot from those guys, just how to think about um, values, how to think about um, building great software and you know, sort of what it takes to sort of socialize that and get it out in the open because they're very good at it. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I've got sidetracked. So, so it's, it's a fantastic story. For me, it's just a follow-up question there. Yeah. How do you actually end up at the Atlassian? Like, how did that happen? Did you meet the founders uh, somewhere before? Or how did you become employee number five or six at Atlassian? Because that's also a very important milestone as you just described with the learnings that you took away. Yeah. Um, how did it happen? It, Australia is pretty small. Sydney is pretty small. Uh, there's not a massive tech scene. I moved there. Um, I was traveling with my uh, girlfriend and we decided we we're going to take 18 months go to Australia. I had some family there and we, you know, we tried out and looking at the job market, there just wasn't much 
of interest there there wasn't much of there's no startup scene back then um there were like these legacy companies and uh atlassian was the one that really just stood out and we met we we actually knew some people in common because i'd actually started the mule project back in london mm-hmm. um they were aware of that project because the open source community was pretty small so everyone kind of knew of everyone else and we just got talking and it seemed like a good fit it was um it was yeah it it it, it seemed to be foretold but it was really just timing right i was just there at the right time when they were when they were growing that's difficult to plan but just happens yes yeah i'd love to say you know i was going to australia and i researched the market (laughs) and i realized Atlassian was the best company to work for that was you know i meet people who say stuff like that and they're you know they're much more organized than i am i sort of go land see what happens and and that happened and it seemed to work out pretty well for you it did uh so yeah so after australia i was coming back to um to Europe and actually we're moving to Malta it's complicated but my my ex-wife is Maltese and so we were going to live there and we did live there for five years and on the way back we stopped in San Francisco and um, bear in mind the the mule project I've been building it for about a year because I built it in my spare time uh, in Australia as well and we stopped at San Francisco and Java One was happening that week again kind of random I, I, I knew it was happening and but we didn't go for that. That was just, a, a, again, a nice, happy coincidence. And I didn't go to the conference, but I went to the drinks events. And, and I just started meeting all these people that knew about the projects and, and were using Mule and, um, you know, saying, I thought you were going to be some stodgy old guy wearing sandals and a beard. And, you know, because <laughs> I, I looked like I was 12 at the time. And because there's integration. And you, you just sort of realize that nobody... Nobody's focused on connecting stuff together. And it really spurred me. And I thought, you know what, this, this is the right path. Right? I've, got, I've got adoption. People love the product. It needs a lot of work. But you know, I've, the open source has done what it's supposed to do, which is prove out that people need something like this. Mm-hmm. And then I had no idea how to build a product company. And I was going to Malta, which is, you know, it's in the middle of the Mediterranean. There's not a lot of software being built there. Um, and so I started a services company uh, serving uh, mostly banks in the UK. And I built that to about 17 people. And one day it started getting difficult. Like it was just, it, there was a lot more admin when you've got that many people on, on the roster and you're you know, dealing with contracts all the time. I was like, this isn't fun. And I, and I, I thought, you know what, I should really do a business plan for this. <laughs> so I sat down on the weekend, I did a business plan and I, and I was looking at the three and five year projections thinking, doesn't make any sense. I was only, you know, I, I can earn more than this. So, you know, why am I doing a business this way? It doesn't make sense. And then um, out of the blue, somebody I met in San Francisco uh, called me and said, hey, I, you know, we spoke about doing like an open source TIBCO when we we're in San Francisco. He said, I'm at this Kaufman Fellowship and um, it's part of an MBA program where um, MBA uh students can get on this Kaufman program to train to be VCs. And it's like a selection process where you do essays, you do projects, and then at the end you have a final interview of the last 20 people. And he was at the end of the last 20 people, and he said, look, I was pitching an idea to them, nobody cares about it. What if I pitch uh, Mule? And what if we do like an open source TIBCO type pitch? And I was like, this is great because I literally just finished a business plan and realized I'm wasting my time. So <laughs> it, it, again, it was just this, okay, let's, let's try this way. 
And it was the same weekend. I, I did the business plan on a Saturday. He called me Saturday night. Sun, we spent all day Sunday building a deck and he pitched it um, on the last day of the, the, the Kaufman Fellowship thing. And within a week, I was flying out to San Francisco and we had our first investor meetings. Crazy. Yeah. It's funny how these things work, but it's just, you know, it, it's... Back then, it was it was actually harder, I think, to plan than it is now. Like, now there's just so much support in the ecosystem to understand where to go, who to talk to. Back then, it was this enigma of, you know, I need money, but I don't know how I get it. And, and right. I spoke, I had actually spoken to investors in Europe, and it, it was very clear they didn't understand how to invest in software because they were so risk-averse, and they wanted me to do so many things to de-risk this idea of investing in open source software that it didn't make sense. It was prohibitive. Got it. So uh, let's also talk about the, the, the selection of open source's starting point. In what way has that actually then supported you to create a company around an open source project? Is that something that you think is a great starting point or is that uh, more of a challenge? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. So I, I always tell, I mean, a lot of founders come to me and they say, hey, I'm thinking about open sourcing, open sourcing my software. How should I do it? And the first question I always ask is, why do you want to open source it? Mm -hmm. and, they were, and the first thing they say to me almost every time is, that's surprising. I, I thought you'd be for it and you'd be telling me how to do it. <laughs> I was like, well, no, because there's, there's two sides to it, right? One, open source, what it does, it allows you to validate that you have a market and validate that you have at least product market fit um, or at least capability market fit, right? You're not selling the product at that point, but people want it. And it gives you distribution, which actually is pretty difficult and has gotten harder over the years. So on the one hand, that's great. On the other hand, when it comes to monetize, if you don't have a very clear line between open source and what your commercial model is going to be, it's very difficult. If that, The more blurred the open source and commercial world is, the harder it is to monetize. And you'll just spend a lot longer trying to differentiate between those two. Mm -hmm. And you know, we did a hard way, and I think it's the way a lot of people do it, which is we had an open core and then we built value on top. But it took us like four years really to build enough value on top where people started to not worry so much about the open source. And in that three-year period, all people are doing is saying, we love it, we use it, it's in production. The open source thing doesn't fall down. We're using external monitoring, monitoring tools like AppDynamics and others. And um, when we're talking to the, the buyer, one question they always ask is, do we have to have support for this? And do we need these enterprise features? And quite often for the first few years, the answer is no, right? Because the open source is by definition should be great because otherwise people don't adopt it. And then you've got to go and build a brand new company on top of the open source to monetize. So it's, it's hard, um, but there is, I, I found some models that work really well. Um, for example, uh, let me think, who should I use here? Um, Gatsby. Gatsby's a really good one. Okay. So Gatsby is uh, um, like a pre-compiled uh, web framework for building web apps and, and web pages. What's nice about it is it, because it's pre-compiled but dynamic, you can use CDM to distribute the content and then it, it, and it's much faster, right? You just okay. get these much more performant web apps. And their open source is the, the core framework, right? And the people who use it are usually agencies or consultants who get hired by marketing agencies to build websites. And then what happens when that consultant leaves 
is they've got this website that somebody built for them, but they, they, they have no source code control. They don't know how to monitor it or anything else. So there's a very clear economic buyer, which is the people that end up owning the website, mm-hmm. which is very different from the person that adopts it. That's a great model, right? Because you can drive adoption all day long. It's free, it's free, it's free. You go use it, you can be more productive. And then somebody gets dumped with a, a website they have to manage and you say, you need to pay us to manage it. And they're like, absolutely, I don't know what to do with this thing. And so I, I like when there's a clear line between the, the, the product and the enterprise software. Absolutely. So in 2006, you actually founded Mulesoft with the investor on board, the first one that you flew to San Francisco for. In what way has you know this differentiation between the open source part and also the, the commercial part then changed? Because then suddenly you had to, to make a business out of it because you had the investors on board. Yeah, pretty pretty quickly we went to um, you know an open core kind of model where um, the 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 core runtime was free, and then we built management tools on top um, that you paid for. That was a slow road, right? You might think that you need management tools, but also operational people also have management dashboards, and they're used to plugging in data. Um, and it took us a long time to really go deep enough in our product to give enough insight where people would say, actually, this is adding a ton more value. And it can't just be a bit more value. It's going to be like 10x value before people say, actually, you know what? We're never going to build this. Let's buy it from you and 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 plug it in. The There were some other things that we did that I think moved us much faster, much quicker. So one of the things was, uh, you know, you've done your research, but I used to call the other products Doodleware, right? The, you know, Informatica and, and Tibco and, and IBM used to have these graphical tools that you could draw stuff in mm-hmm. and generate code. And then you were just stuck with generated crappy code. And you have to go and edit it to make it work for what you need. And it wasn't very useful. And so we decided, okay, we're going to make Mule more accessible by providing a graphical environment, but it's going to be two-way editing. Right, and it's going to have all the testing built in, and it, you know, we thought about tools the way they should be, which is where they are now. But back then, integration was this wasteland of of terrible code and you know things running all over the place. And so we built Studio, and Studio was free but not open source. <clears throat> and the runtime we embedded in Studio by default was the commercial runtime, which had more features than the open source runtime. And it was a bit controversial at first, but in the end that drove so much more adoption within enterprises for us. And nobody really cared about the open source in, in the enterprise anyway. That wasn't, you know, they cared more about the features that they were getting and, and getting support. And that just kind of turned the corner for us. That got people to realize, okay, this is really a, a commercial company. Um, there might be an open core. That's great because if, you know, it de-risks, you know, betting on this as a, you know, 10-year platform, but um, we really need all the other stuff. And that, that, bizarrely, dev tools can really help there. Nice. And we talked about timing before, you know, the timing of being in San Francisco or in Australia at the right time, basically. So why was the timing right to found actually the company MuleSoft in 2006? Now, probably that was also a coincidence first, but yep. looking back, why was the timing right from, from your perspective? Well, it was right even then. We, I could tell it was right because... Um, there's usually there's market indicators. So the first one was there was a, a bunch of other companies that were open source that were becoming commercial companies. So there was a bit of a playbook, right, of investors were starting to see, okay, open source might be a viable 
distribution model and then you know we'll place the bet that that we can monetize on top so alfresco mm-hmm. did this um sugar crm did this and there was a bunch of others um and so timing wise it's good to jump in when other people are doing it like there's always this sometimes a misconception if you're the first it's the best but the first is usually the hardest if three other people have done a business you know an open source but you know found it not found it but funded an open source business then you coming in as the third or fourth one is so much easier. And so um, we needed that because what wasn't obvious in the market was why people needed a new integration platform. Integration, even back then, was absolutely saturated, right? There was these big players and there was like thousands of small players and there was thousands of verticalized players all doing integration. Nobody had come close to unifying the models, right? Even Gartner was a big problem here because what Gartner did, uh, they would separate, you know, file management from web services, from APIs, from, you know, core integration to EDI. These are all different quadrants, right? And it just promotes fragmentation in the market. And what we were doing was saying, no, we'll do all of those on one platform. And that was the big game changer but nobody, literally nobody saw it. Like we, we, we sang it from the rooftops. We talked about it all the time. Nobody cared, but we knew it was the right way. And that's the other thing is that you have to have a bit of conviction in what you think is going to be right. And I, you know, there's a, there's a probably another question coming here is when do you let go of that conviction? Um, but it was super important for MuleSoft because if we hadn't kept that line, we would have just looked like every other integration company. Right. So this, you know, this is a big challenge that you faced at the beginning. The, the market is not there yet, basically. Yeah. You have to build your own market. How do you make that happen uh, without losing the conviction that you just mentioned is so important to keep you going? Yeah. Well, the first thing, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty stubborn person. <laughs> that <laughs> so, helps. You know, a lot of people will come to me and it's like, I'm not sure this is working. It's like, it's got to work. <laughs> and I'm quite lightweight thinking, okay, how do I make this work? And, and you realize... For this particular product, it was never going to sell itself. Not because it wasn't great. The developers, you know, early on, I think I set a good direction, but I think you know, the developers we hired after built, built great products on top. Um, so it wasn't that. What it was was the market was just so used to looking at the world a certain way, which is very fragmented. And the whole value proposition and Mule was, and MuleSoft was, you can do all those different integrations on the same platform with all the testing, with all the monitoring, with all the um, debugging capabilities, with the same graphical environment. So any developer, no matter where they came from, as long as they understood at the time a bit of Java, but now that's not even necessary, um, could go and do integration, right? And that seemed to be, I, I thought, you know, a really good selling proposition, but it's it amazing people just didn't look at it that way. So what we had to go do was educate the market and, you realize that nothing, you know, integration and architecture in general in, in, in companies took a really big hit after web services. I don't know if you remember this, but web services were going to be this all-encompassing uh, capability for exchanging information. And Microsoft and IBM and a few others fragmented the market and, uh, you know, put architects on a pedestal to create these beautiful, non-practical, non-functional you know, architectures and those teams just lost credibility, right? So architects in, in these big organizations didn't have any sway 
right? They, they, you know, they, 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 they were there to make sure things were built right, but they didn't really have any control or any say on how things got done. So we started with evangelizing to architects on how to, how to get architecture over the line, how, how to build things the right way and how to communicate it up the chain. And so MuleSoft Summit was a way of doing it. I was, I was good at it. And so I started um, getting on stage and just talking about it and making, um, you know, ma making integration interesting again and, and helping people understand how important it was to have this capability because without it, there's no, there's no digital there's no transform back then there was no transformation, but like five, you know, five years ago, no transformation. Mm -hmm. And then I weave in all the new trends, which made it interesting and help them understand how that would impact the integration landscape and how you connect all that stuff together. Right. And we just, th those events, it seems very old school to sort of go on the road and, and talk to people a hundred at a time. Um, but it's very powerful, right? Because you get, you know, you get 50 architects in the room, 30 developers and, and some management, and they spend a day with you. Mm -hmm. And in that day, they get to ask all the questions. They get to talk to your customers. And it was the best selling tool. We do one of these events and the pipeline would just fill up for six months. And it was better than any online marketing or anything else because people really needed to, to sit back and think about it, right? And you know, have someone help explain what they're seeing in their organization and why they'd have to do things differently. How do you attract the people to join your event? Because if, you know, the topic is somewhere relevant, but like you still have to educate them about it. How do you attract them to attend your events? Yeah, that's, uh, in the early days, you know, we, it was a mix of, we had good following on the open source. People liked the product, right? Yeah. So developers liked it and architects liked it. It was harder to get management there because they weren't, uh, they just weren't thinking that, you know, integration was something that you'd always just push down to the architects and developers and that they'd take care of it. And so um, much more of my messaging, both in the events, but also thought leadership. So through CIO.com and, and other channels would be talking about um, how to think about integration, like everything from, um, you know, why is, why is IT considered a cost center and not an asset, right? And, and helping them understand that it's seen that way because you don't deliver assets in IT, you deliver projects that have no leverage value. So if you can deliver assets, things that you can reuse, that becomes much more interesting. And, and we sort of reignited a lot of discussions that happened in the early 2000s, but gave a much more prescriptive way of how to get there with modern technology. Got it. And then how do you make sure that they also convert it to paying customers after such an event attendance? Well, you know, it's just good sales process, right? So, um, uh, you know, I spent, interestingly with MuleSoft, I spent the last six years on sales, marketing and product strategy. That's pretty much all I spent my time on. Yeah. And, um, you know, I didn't do the process side. We have great people to run, run a sales process and a cadence and all that. What I was doing was trying to figure out, okay, how do we how do we sell integration with a million dollar ACV price tag, right? We'd done it a few times in 2014. I looked at the four deals we've done that have been over a million dollars ARR, and I was just trying to find any way to replicate that. And I, I actually in 2015 I went on the road with two of our best salespeople. And I was gonna do it for three months. And after about six weeks, I came back and I just said, look, we cannot, 
even though our platform adds a ton of value to certain organizations, we cannot just sell software to, to get to a million dollar ACV. And um, yeah, I just looked at what our value propositions were and what I thought the market needed. And, and I ended up coming up with, with the CTO, Uri, um, this method, methodology called API-led connectivity, which was just connecting things is fairly low value. But if you make some of those connections reusable through APIs, i.e. You know, what we know as APIs today, um, that will actually propel your organization forward. And then we thought, well, if you have these APIs, how, what does that do to the way you deliver projects? How do you change that? And within, within that year, we realized, okay, we have to be selling a new IT operation, operating model. And um, you know, long story short, 2015, we did $6 million ACV deals. In 2016, we rolled it out. At the end of 2015, we rolled it out to the sales team. In 2016, we did 38. And then we did you know, 76 and then over 100, right? It, we just, it clicked. We, we figured out the, the, right, the right mode of doing it. We didn't change the software. The software was really good. I mean, bear in mind, I think the software was undervalued in the market. We'd over-delivered on the capabilities, but we hadn't found a way to get organizations to really understand how to leverage it. There's also a famous quote, I think, where you say that software alone won't really set you apart from your competition. So that's actually what you did then there, right? You rebundled it without changing the software and found a better entry point, a better also value proposition to sell to your clients. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I, for me, um, there's some things that sell themselves. There's some types of software that just sells itself, and that's great. But increasingly, there's very little, you know, greenfield left. You know, very little light between all the different platforms of where you can find a niche and and have a piece of software that sells itself. And a lot of technical founders think that just by building great software, you will have a great outcome. And the reality is, you've also got to connect that software to the market. So you go to market strategy, sure. and go to market isn't just finding someone who has the immediate need, but sometimes it's actually okay. How do I reprogram people to think about? the way they're doing things differently. Mm -hmm. Changing behavior is much harder and it's not for the faint of heart, but it's it's a great way of building a multi-billion dollar business. Absolutely. And I also wonder, you said that you saw or knew where the market was going. Where did that conviction come from? Did you just see it by talking to your customers and analyzing or where did you get that information? And also then basically the, the summary that you know where you need to go. So, uh, Looking back, I, I think I can say one of the skills I learned I was pretty good at is reading markets. Um, back then, you know, you don't before you can say something like that, you you, you don't know that you you're right, and you never really right. know. So um, I always so I did one thing every year, uh, which is at the end of the year, I'd always look at did I believe that the market was still there for what we're doing? Did I believe that we're doing the right things? And then for me, selfishly, am I having enough impact on the business to keep doing this, right? Um, we can talk about that, a bit about that later. And the one thing that was always certain for me was the market was there. And the reason it was there was because we have this thing, the, these thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people called system integrators. And their job is to go into companies and help them connect systems together. And none of that is productized. That is people on the ground using whatever products they want from custom code all the way through to MuleSoft. And there's just so much money being spent there 
that there had to be an opportunity to go and productize that and get more value out of it. It was $760 billion spent every year from 2016 onwards. Um, and before that, it was still 500 billion. Like it was just such a, a massive spend that it's not a, not a TAM, but it's addressable spend. Like people are right. spending so much money on this and getting, so, like if you ask anyone um, what they think about integration, you know, in the last five years, they'd all say it's an absolute pain in the ass. And then if you ask them, all right, what's in your top three um, objectives for the year? Up until about four years ago, integration wasn't even the top 10, right? And then suddenly, if you, if you start reading the 10Ks, it started coming in. And I, I think part it was because there was so much software. And I think part because I think MuleSoft, we did a great job at educating the market that how important it was to get this right. Awesome. I think we could probably talk for about the market strategy and the sales strategy for probably two or three more hours. But I also want to talk about another setup that was really crucial for you from day one. Mm -hmm. You were a distributed company uh, very early on. And I just wonder, like, you know, back in the days in 2006, that wasn't like the new normal now with COVID hitting us that, you know, we work remotely. So we're just well ahead, way ahead. So we <laughs> exactly. knew it wasn't going to happen. Um, yeah. I mean, remote isn't. Actually, remote's fairly common for open source projects because obviously the, the contributors are all over the place. And I was following that model originally. And, and what I've learned is in the case of MuleSoft, and I think anything that's technical and hard to sell, you can build software remotely. You cannot build a company remotely when it's technical. There's caveats and there's plenty of companies that do build and sell remotely. And I think with COVID, that's all going to change. So this is almost a, a moot point. But um, you you can organize developers. There's enough tool chain to organize developers to build the right things. And you know, there's mm -hmm. been enough thought around processes. And as long as you can inspire your team, you know, at what they're going after and why they're doing things, and you can regularly regular check-ins to understand whether you're moving in that right direction then it works. And typically, that's easy with small teams. It's much harder when you have multiple engineering teams. Right. Um, we found at MuleSoft, because our sales motion was so complicated, right? it's not just, hey, we've got great software. The software itself is middleware, which means even if you give it to someone, they're still going to build something on top of it. So that's already a hurdle. Um, so you've got this technical set of challenges about how to use the software. You've also got the market challenges of them not really realizing they need a better way of doing integration, but they're feeling the pain. And then you've also got the sales challenges, which is the market is flooded with other integration providers. And how does anyone make a decision against you versus something they've already got? And bear in mind, most of the companies we sold to already had seven or eight other vendors that they were buying integration from, right? Um, so all that meant that everyone had to be like in it the whole time, thinking about how to navigate this this complexity, and we 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 set a rule in 2010 that there was there was going to be no uh, remote working within the offices, mm -hmm. and it was very unpopular, like super unpopular. Um, but later on, as we got bigger, we we obviously instrumented our teams, and and we realized that salespeople, for example, were 50% less productive if they were in a satellite sales office versus with some other functions. Right. Okay. So, you know, a lot of people tell me like, we think about putting sales over here because all they're doing is selling is like, no, if they're not connected to the mothership for this type of product, 
it's going to be very hard for them to be successful. And I think anything in the developer middleware realm um, falls into that category. It gets a bit easier once um, you're, you're on the app side. I think that's a very interesting takeaway with, uh, you know, having them integrated with the mothership, as you call it. Yeah. Another thing that you also did early on is, you know, there's fierce competition for talent in San Francisco. So you open an office in Buenos Aires in Argentina. Why did you decide to take that step? Well, oh, let me let me paint you a picture, right? Sure. You're in San Francisco. Um, you're a company that has this middleware product built in Java and you sell to um, IT organizations that are typically slow and lumbering. And it, you were solving a set of problems that were pretty well ill understood. Like people didn't really understand. Like even if you ask some of our developers, what's the core def, you know, difference between MuleSoft and others? I don't think you, you know, back in 2010, you would have got a very coherent answer. And so you, that's what we were trying to hire into. And then we were competing with mobile and and facebook and and google and, and and you know back in 2010 everyone was building apps everyone was going mobile first integration was never going to go mobile first you know it could now but back then uh, it was way too soon and so you had to find the right people right and it's just there wasn't enough of the right people that we could hire and attract and bring into our organization in the bay area and so we started looking well okay what Let's look at our dev team, which was still distributed, and it is to this day. And again, a bit of a, um, a, a circumstance. We had two developers in Buenos Aires, the original sort of the of the open source team. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, why don't we why don't we set up a small office down there? That'll at least get us a few more developers. We could run some testing down there. We could do some other things. And then you start doing some research, and you realize that the schools are great. The time zone really works if you're a U.S. company because they're they're just south. Um, it's bilingual, and they have a great work ethic. And you know, the first three people we hired were just head and shoulders of the last three people we hired in San Francisco. I was like, okay, we should do this differently. Why don't we? You know, and we started looking at could we actually run product down in Buenos Aires, and that was a harder. Uh, corner to turn because there wasn't there were people there who were you know doing projects for Google and and Verizon and, and others, mm-hmm. but they weren't delivering software. And delivering software is different from writing code to deliver a project, right? It's just a different mindset. And we just decided that we were going to teach that organization how to build products and and actually have them run certain products. And so we gave them. The open, uh, the open source and the, the you know the enterprise runtime, um, and the IDE, and then we kept cloud in San Francisco because because it was just too much of a leap to mm. first learn product and learn how to build in the cloud. It was just like too much, and so we hired people um, in San Francisco doing cloud on premise was uh, done in Buenos Aires, and they just you know. Bear in mind, if the on-premise stuff didn't work, nothing worked, right? That was the core of the business, so it was a big step. But they were great, and, and um, you know, that team, last I checked, was like 400 people. Wow. It's, a, it's a big office, and they build... Um, there's still an office in Mountain View, and there's one in San Francisco, and, and everyone's building different parts of the platform. But, you know, Buenos Aires became the key cornerstone of our product delivery strategy. 
And one thing that you also realized when opening offices in other countries was the cultural differences. I think there was a story in your LinkedIn post. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> can you talk a bit more about how you experienced that? Yeah. I, um, so, yeah, early days of, of uh, Buenos Aires, they, um, we used to, like, on rotation, the execs would go down to the office so they'd feel more connected to the because it's, it's a 12-hour flight. It's quite a long way away. Right. And, you know, even though it's the same time zone, they, they only ever saw us through Zoom meetings, which back then seemed terrible, but not Zoom, whatever we were using at the time. Um, but now, obviously, uh, everyone everyone understands that. So every few weeks, one of us would go down there, spend, you know, a good, like, two weeks with the team. And, and um, I was there on my first day when we just got a new office. And I came in early. I couldn't sleep. I was like, you know. And... Uh, people started arriving in the office, and we had this cults program, which were these uh, uh, these uh, um, these kids, basically first or second year in college. They mm -hmm. could come and join us and start to get to understand what it was like to build product and be in a product organization. And one of the cults came in, and it's very normal. Uh, I, I'm led to believe for everyone to just kiss each other on the cheek twice, and so I'm just you know, reading my email and tapping away. And suddenly out of nowhere, somebody puts their arm around me and kisses me on one cheek and goes to kiss the other. And I just go bright red. I'm like, what? <laughs> I, you know, I, I like an introduction first before we, you know, we get to this. And I could just, as this was going on, it was all in slow motion. I could see the office manager running towards me saying, oh, no, no. I can't remember what she was saying because it was all sort of blurry and slow motion. And, uh, she basically uh, sort of diffused it. I, I mean, I was just, I didn't know what was going on. So I, was looked, I obviously looked embarrassed because I, you know, in San Francisco, it's not like that at all. Right. And uh, she explained to me, it's like it's customary for, um, you know, friends and people you work with to, to kiss on both cheeks. And he's a cult and don't, I'm, like, I'm not worried about it. But then I didn't never got the follow-up kiss. So I was, <laughs> I kind of lost out. <laughs> I also wonder, you know, in what way has your European background actually helped you to, first of all, understand the different culture that you had in the different office locations, but also just to actually take that step and go outside of the US? Do you think that this was also a bit driven by your European roots, basically? Because if we look at US companies, most of them are also really focused on the US markets and yeah. also on having US office locations, maybe spread around the country, but not much beyond that. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of it was to do with the open source distribution. You know, we just had big companies using us in New Zealand, Australia, okay. Japan, London, um, you know, Spain, France, everywhere. And so a lot of that international expansion was, was actually born out of the open source distribution, not because I thought we needed to be in other geos. In actual fact, I would always... Um, tell companies to focus on one geo. There's always this idea that, well, we already have the software. All we need is a salesperson in that region and they can sell it and then we'll just support them remotely. It, it doesn't work that way, right? It's just the, the complexities with the negotiation, the, you know, the, the cultural expectation of what you've got to get from the vendor, um, the customer post support can often be quite different just because you need to really understand how culturally those organizations in that region like to work with a vendor and we fell for it 
over and over again. You know, we'd have a sales leader in London who'd say, look, if we just, you know, do this deal out in France, we can put someone there. And it never worked. And actually, I've got to commend one of my um, one of my early angel investments, People.ai. Uh, they they have a piece of software um, that's doing incredibly well, and they've decided to uh, cut off distraction of of any global expansion, focus on North America, and just double down in that market. And it's the right thing to do because the noise it creates to have multiple offices um, is just it. It's deafening. Like it, 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 you have to be really big to support that. Right. We grew into it at MuleSoft because we we had so much acceleration from 2015 to 27, you know, 16, 17, 18, mm -hmm. that it was okay. We managed to drive through it. But if we hadn't hit that, um, finding the million dollar ACV uh, model, that would have been very hard to, to navigate and doing smaller deals yeah. all the time. Yeah, again, a very valuable takeaway for people listening to this. Yeah, no, honestly, geo makes a massive difference. And every, when you're finding it hard in one geo, it seems so tempting to just transpose that to another geo. And, and then you think, well, you've got double the opportunity. But you've also got double the headache. Yeah. And for most companies, it's going to be net neutral, maybe distractive. So um, for U.S. companies, it's a very easy decision, right? Sure. Stay, yeah. stay in the U.S. It's a massive economy. With Europe, it's a bit harder. Right, it's just you. At some point, you have to have a multi-geo strategy because, you know, dominating, you know, one market often isn't enough. Right. Do you think that this only applies to sales, like really, you know, entering a market and, and building up customers there? So it would still work as you did with Buenos Aires, for example, to have a product team or developer somewhere else without actually selling that market. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm talking about um, sales. So where your customers are, because you know, the more diverse that is, the harder it is to manage. But for development teams, I still think you want to cluster, mm -hmm. right? So having a fully remote team where people are everywhere can be difficult with time zones. Yeah. But for example, I just, you know, I just invested in a company that has a, a very strong remote team in India. Uh, you know, five years ago, I don't think people would have been so excited about that because it's so, so many time zones away. Mm -hmm. um, but you can do it. And, you know, in, in the age of COVID and post-COVID, I think having remote teams, whether it's in Kuala Lumpur or India or Buenos Aires or Peru, right. it, it, it won't matter quite as much. Um, and certainly in the early days of a company, when you're bootstrapped for cash, that extra engineering talent that you're not, you know, that you just get more heads for your money and providing you hire the right people, it, it can sure. be an advantage. Absolutely. So closely linked to going, you know, distributed and nowadays working remote is also hiring in general. What you always try to do is basically hire yourself out of a job, something that we don't hear from many founders. So why did you decide to make that a priority to hire ideally yourself out of a job? Yeah, there's two answers to that. There's the one, the, uh, the, the, uh, the gracious for the better of the people. I frankly, I'm a bit lazy, right? I, and, um, you know, running a company, like you said, I was CTO. I was CEO for a while. I ran uh, services and support. I ran product. I ran engineering. I did everything at MuleSoft. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, I was never going to be the best at any of those, I don't think. And I, I think my skills is, it lies somewhere else. But I, I, I'm good enough to do a lot of those roles or at least get people into those roles that they can go and do it better than me. And so... As soon as a role gets difficult, I look at it and think, okay, can I hire someone or can I hire, either hire part of this role or the whole role um, 
and move myself out of this position so that somebody else can focus on it and, and fill the gaps that I'm, I'm actually painfully aware that I'm missing. Right. And the reality is, is, you know, I speak to a lot of founders, early founders, and, and they're CEOs, and they're saying, I want to find a really strong COO. You hear this a lot. And the problem with trying to find, I, I thought the same thing when I, before I hired my CEO. The problem is if, if someone's good enough to be a COO, they're going to be a CEO. And then you have to make room for that person for the role if you want your company to, to, to grow and you know meet your aspirations. And you have a choice to make. I, I think if I did it again, I'd probably be CEO because I, I have a lot of experience now, probably more than many. Mm -hmm. um, but back then, I didn't have that much experience of operating. And, and our business needed this thought leadership. I, I had to go and train the whole market differently how to, how to think about this. And that was a full-time job for a while. And so... You know, I just got it in my head that the, the best way to do this would be to make space for people to come in who could do the job better than I could, or at least, you know, try and find that person that could. And it meant that, you know, we hired a, you know, a CEO, um, hired a, a CTO. And actually, I didn't have a, a, a title really in the company. It was kind of weird, but I was just like the honorary founder. Mm -hmm. Like I was plugged into everything. I was, I was very engaged. I, I didn't need the um, command chain power in the organization to get things done. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's the one role in the company that if you really understand what you're trying to do and you want it to be big and you want to make room for people so that they can do their best work, you, I, you know, I'd be very comfortable doing it again, right? But I, I can understand why founders don't like it, right? They don't want to let go of that control. Um, there, it is a challenge, right? There's, it, it's, it, you know, when you you disagree on the path forward, you are going to lose out. That's that's right. one one of the problems. Yeah. How did you actually handle that challenge? Because you know there's also fear involved, or you're scared that maybe things are not going in the right direction, or just the, the pure fear of letting go and handing things over to someone else for a specific role. Well, the interesting thing is you don't need absolute control over things to control things. Okay. Right. Right. So, you as long as you're coming from the the standpoint that everyone is trying to do their best to make this successful. Like you have to believe that's true. If that's not true, then then you do have a problem. Yeah. Um, I looked at everyone around us and everyone was doing most of the right things. The way I would steer would be to do the things that I was best at, which was to go out to the market, talk to the prospects, actually pitch them ideas and figure out really what landed and what resonated with them. And you know, I the set, the whole sort of MuleSoft sales play. I built that with a, a Tiger team of our, you know, our, our chief revenue officer, our customer success, and eventually our our lead sales and and a few other people, and then people you know deeper in the organization, about six or seven of us. And I would go out. I would, you know, I'd take three calls with CIOs a week if I could get them. I'd go to these events. I'd go to all over the place just to see people mm -hmm. and pitch them. You know, at the time it was um, the platform of the, the, and then you know, API-led connectivity. So I proved these ideas out, and I and I I'd come back in, and I could talk from a point of um, knowledge, right? I didn't just come up with a slide deck and present it to the team. I went out, came back. And just show them that this is who I spoke to. This is what they're responding to. This is going to work. And actually, I've identified three customers that we should go and run this with. And it's you know, it's basically I'm doing the things that if if I was running a company, I want people doing that in my organization, which is 
don't come to me with an idea. Come to me with an idea and some forethought about how it's going to work. And don't ask permission. Just go out there and do some things, right? As long as you don't do anything terrible, like put the the company at risk or the brand at risk or, you know, then you should have free reign to go figure out how this is going to work. And Mm -hmm. you don't, I guess it's reference power. Like as as a founder, you can do that, right? Your people listen to you. They kind of believe, you know, all right, you've set the vision for this. They they will listen to you. So it's a bit easier as, as a founder to do that. Absolutely. What did he actually ask these people? Because sometimes um, they say something, but then when it actually comes to put the money on the table or actually buy it, use it, whatever, they do something differently. So how do you make sure that you got to the core and to the really, the, the, the root things that you were looking for to, to set the right decisions? Yeah, so in the beginning, it was super painful, right? Uh, talking to CIOs as an in, in, uh, integration company was terrible. And the only way we could get meetings, because nobody would talk to a, a vendor, let alone integration vendor, right. we uh, we did once did this pay-to-play thing where we spent 40 grand on this sort of like IT CIO events in LA. And I went with uh, my CEO at the time and um, our VP of sales. And we got meetings with a bunch of different CIOs, and it was just painful. We sat there, and we just tripped over ourselves. And... I remember my CEO telling me, it's like, like, we can't even explain this. And he's like, you know, and then he said, like, why can't you explain? I was like, well, why can't you explain it? <laughs> he's like, you're right, we're, we're a bit, we're a bit fucked. <laughs> and, and I said, look, I'll go figure it out. And um, then I just, you know, our investors used to run these sort of uh, IT leadership uh, meetings where they, you know, they'd have relationships with companies and they bring them out to Silicon Valley for two days. They mm-hmm. have a whole Silicon Valley experience, and we'd be one of the companies that they'd meet. And in the beginning, I, I was pitching them. I get thirty minutes with them, and I pitch them. And then I'd get five minutes at the end, and I, you know, get a little bit tidbits of what they really cared about, what resonated, what what didn't. And it didn't work very well in the early days. But what I was doing was, I was learning how to communicate with these people, what they cared about. And it was just literally trial and error. It was like back and forth, back and forth. And then at some point, I stopped going in with the pitch and I started just asking questions. It's hard to do that because a lot of them are there to be pitched, right? So they, you ask more than two questions. They're like, well, I want to hear what you do. I want to hear what the product does. Right. And I said, look, and I, I, I got to the point where I was confident to say, look, it doesn't matter what the product does right now. And they're like, what do you mean? I say, well, because you have a bigger problem in your organization. It's this. And they're like, actually, that's right. And we just have a very different conversation. And for the last five years, I never talked about product, not once. Because my job wasn't to sell the product. My job was to get that person to think differently about what their problem was. And basically to put, push integration higher up on that, that uh, um, priority list. Awesome. Before we continue with the show, we would like to introduce you to our new partner, Nuco. Nuco helps founders navigate the paperwork that starting a company involves. From the first consultation all the way to the commercial register, Nuco has helped more than 900 entrepreneurs start their company, and they do so at highly competitive prices. To find out more, visit nuco.ch slash Swisspreneur. Again, that's nuco.ch slash Swisspreneur. And now, on with the show. 
Let's also quickly talk about the six years period when you then actually left as CTO, your CTO role and then yeah. become the founder. How was that for you to let go of your original role as CTO? Was that difficult for you on also on an emotional level or was that an easy transition? No, no, it was super hard. I, um, I found it difficult. You know, we, we hired Urian, um, both uh, our, our CEO and I both knew him from, you know, prior anyway. So there was a good connection there. But it was it was really difficult. Like I knew I needed to do it. I knew I couldn't. Like I had to be outbound all the time, and and we needed a CEO to be focused inbound and be thinking about um, architecture and also um, technology selection. Like yeah. we'd sort of run. We got to a certain size where what I was doing was like a full time position at the time, but we had all these other things, other decisions to make around the product, and I just didn't have time to really dig in, and I wasn't doing. The role justice the way I was doing it so uh, it became clear that we needed somebody else um, with me um, that was focused purely on the, the CDO function right uh, I still stayed very connected to product I didn't run product um, we had someone running product but I was basically the conduit between the customer and the product the, the most reliable conduit I guess um, but it was it was tough and actually in those years and there was other stuff going on in my life as well uh, I probably went through a bit of depression, right? Not not terrible because I'm not a very depressed person, but looking back, I wasn't myself, and it wasn't it wasn't because of that, but it um, it definitely made it harder at the time. But looking back, it was exactly the right thing to do. Like, and again, it's a bit like that conviction on the market opportunity or the approach to the market. I was convinced that this had to happen. I, I was convinced that you you know you had to bring people in and let them be the role that you you weren't quite filling and just you know either one or two things either you find things to do or you leave the company i didn't want to leave the company but every year i i assessed on the market our ability to attack that market and the impact i was having and and i will i guess use that as a as a indicator every christmas and um and then the question is if i wasn't adding enough value what would i do differently and i'd come back in january and i'd have a whole new <laughs> way to go and yeah. it's so it, you know it, it's I don't think it's for everyone to do that um, but it you often see founders who do get squeezed out of a role usually because the, the, the board tells them exactly to, yeah. to, to move out and then they feel totally dejected and then like they failed it's like but it, if your failure is being a great CTO then you could go and join any company if your your objective is to build a great company then it shouldn't matter what your role is, exactly. yeah. right? And if you look at it that way, and I always looked at it that way, right? It was just like, I don't care what role I have in this company. Um, I just want to make an impact. And that's why I always measured impact every year versus, um, so, you, you know, I could have been just an individual person with no impact, but I wouldn't have stayed at the company. Right. I think there it also shows, you know, your, your personal story, basically, the way that you grew up with the high bar that you mentioned at the beginning, this seems to be a very good fit to also reassess every year and having this high bar for yeah. yourself. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, 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 it just reminds you all the time that everything's expendable and not everything's set in stone and you don't have to keep doing things for 10 years if A, it's not making you happy or you're not adding enough value. Right. And as you said there, the founder journey can also be a, a lonely journey. So the depression part is probably also something that could result from pressure or where did it come from? Was there just too much pressure also from investor side or how did it actually? No, actually investors, 
um, they, there was never any pressure from investors for me to move out of any role, right? It's kind of weird. It, it was um, usually me saying, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And then, and I'd have a side conversation like, but you're staying in the company, right? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm staying in. I just, I just think this, we need to make this change. Um, and so it was more the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, 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 I, I, I guess I, I was always looking at the whole business, right? I, I suppose that's the other thing. So um, I haven't really thought of this. You just made me think about it. But the, the way I'd look at it, Again, you know, my yearly check-in was looking at the whole business, not mm. me and was I happy, and but it was actually looking at we doing the right things and then am I adding enough value? And by looking at the world that way, just it kept me more honest about what needed to happen next. I think. Right. Yeah. And how do you actually get out of the depression? Um, did you also get any help from the outside, or what actually got you out of there? Because that can also really, you know, be a very very tough and intense time for yourself. Um, yeah, it was weird because I, I, I didn't go to a doctor. I didn't really talk about it. Um, I, I just I just felt um, things became difficult for a while. Okay. Um, I, I did a couple of things. So one thing I did was uh, I started exercising more. I changed my work regime. So while, rather than working all the time, I decided to shut the, you know, once I left work, shut my email and not go back to it until the next day three days a week that made a an incredible difference right just switching off because you can stare at your inbox or whatever you know your slack channels and just keep responding to stuff all day long sure and it means you never you never let your brain process what's happened that day let alone what should be happening next right so finding ways to decompress were, were really important and the other thing i started doing was exercising a lot more so I, I started with running, then I started doing triathlons. And I found that was like cathartic repair for me, just to get away from any device, no notifications, just me exercising. It was, it was basically like um, active meditation. And, you know, I, I think I attribute all the best work I did was because I changed the way uh, I lived a bit, which was through a bit more healthy, I'm not a health nut, but I, I always go running. I always go cycling um, and just spend real time thinking about things at a macro level, not just responding to stuff, which can easily happen in an organization. Once you get over 500 people, there's this saturation of content and activity and you, can't, you just can't keep on top of it. So you have to decide how to pull yourself up, pull the nose up to keep focused on what's important going forward. And business was growing very nicely. So we're going to fast forward a bit to 2017, March ah. 17th. I'm sure that's a day to remember very well I when do. you went public with MuleSoft. So please tell us, how did it feel when you actually rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange? So I, I, don't, I never used to talk about this, but I, I always wanted to take MuleSoft public, right? I, and I wanted to do it. I, I'm a big believer in enjoying journeys and experiences so mm -hmm. i do things quite a lot because it's something i haven't done before not because um of any other gain other than i want to go see what that feels like and actually i even map that to negative experiences i've been through that if you you know going through things and then reflecting on it teaches you so much about yourself the world how to operate etc 
And for me, going public was was a big one because uh, I think at the time it made me the first open source founder to take a company public, um, which is a, a very weird and very specific title that I gave to myself. <laughs> um, but I, that's what I wanted. It, you know, you have to have some internal goal. Um, there was a bit of vanity there, but there's also a bit of a there are, you got the qualification, you qualified, you know, that means that you, you have a real business that people can introspect and invest in and still get excited about. Right. And by the way, it's integration and no one gets it, right? right? So it was, it was a really cool moment. Um, I will say on the day, I barely remember it. So my me- memories from the day are actually the photos and the videos that, that were shot <laughs> that I now have looked at. So, um, but it was incredible. And what was really nice about it uh, was and actually, uh, Greg came up with this, and it was great. We we found a way to get as many people as possible at the event because, bear in mind, our, our culture was no work at home. Everyone's in it. This is super hard. It's, it was hard to sell. It was hard to market. Hard to do everything because it's it was so amorphous, and the market was kind of against us a bit. And so we wanted a way to bring as many people to the IPO as possible. So quite often when you see IPOs, there'll just be like two founders on the podium. You'll see with us, we had the whole exec team plus some, you know, some of the really early employees. But what you didn't see was we had another, I think, 250, the maximum you could have in the building down below, which is all the MuleSoft people that had come to enjoy the moment, right? Awesome. And and we did this thing, whereas if you'd been with us for four years, then you know we paid for your costs. If you've been here for three years, we cover 75%. If you've been here for two years, 50, and then 25% for one year. If you're less than a year, unfortunately, you, you couldn't really get there unless you, you know, but you could, you know, you could pay for it and hang out afterwards. Right. And everyone just jumped at it because it's it's a it's a great experience. Like in the same way I wanted it, everyone else wanted it, right? They they wanted to feel what it was like to go to the New York Stock Exchange and hear the bell rung and and be part of something. And so that was an incredible day for me. Just a day, but it was I was, you know, walking on air for weeks afterwards. You said that you always wanted to do an IPO, but never really talked about it. Why not? Um, because that could also be part of your vision where you want to take the company, right? Yeah, so this was my um, this is my Britishness. Okay, right. It was um, you know the going IPO back then. You know when I first started, I remember my dad asked me. He said, "So, like, what are you going to do with this company?" I, I, I think I just moved to to San Francisco, so it's probably 2012, and I was working my ass off. They didn't see me much, and he says, "Like, what what?" What do you do with this? Like, what happens? And I thought about. It, I said, "Well, I think the only option we can we can go for is to to go public, go on, you know, literally go on the stock exchange." He's like, "Oh, okay." And and he and and he said, "Why is that?" I said, "Well, because I don't think this is worth anything to anyone in the way that we see the world, and so the only way we can remain independent." And do what we do is to be a public company and be benchmarked against all the other companies. And that was the first time I said it out loud. I'm not sure I said it again, except for behind closed doors with the exec team right. after that. I don't know why. I just, it just, um, it was almost like my little personal secret. I don't know. It's just, it seems weird because now founders say it like it's nothing when they're getting seed. True. It's like, do this for five years and, and go public. It's like, well, all right. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just something I internalized versus externalized. 
Nice. And why did going public actually make sense from your soft? Uh, it actually made sense for us beyond you know my my little dream. Um, it made sense because we were selling to the you know the Fortune 2000, and we'd often get these requests for financials and other types of audits, and just being compliant with a publicly traded company just actually reduced some of the friction. Like some of these companies to spend what they were spending with us, to make the bets they were making with us, right? You know, these organizations are building the next generation of payments or banking or uh, healthcare. They, it was just, I think, more comfortable for them to know that we were a traded company in that, you know, you could do a lot more research on us about, uh, you know, viability and, and things like that if right. we're a public. So that was probably the main rationale. We didn't need to raise capital back then private investment was so much so easy to get hold of you didn't need it but it was just we wanted to be benchmarked and and run like a public company okay again setting the bar higher i would say yeah right? yeah exactly and can you also walk us through the process usually this takes quite some time right to prepare and then you also usually on the roadshow you have investment banks involved so who was involved and how did the process look like of going ipo from yoursoft yeah, so we decided as a team um, probably 18 months before that, okay, we're going to do this. And so to do that, in the beginning, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of work on the, you know, the finance team and the CFO because they've got to get the systems in place. They've got to do the SOX compliance. Mm -hmm. And then um, Greg uh, ran all the banker meetings and then he'd pull us in like as they got a bit further down the line. I think he pretty took, loads of those meetings and I don't think he enjoyed it that much but um, he would pull me and Simon in whenever um, they wanted to go a bit deeper on the sales or the the sort of vision and like the strategy of the company um, and then once we've chosen a banker we we actually agreed that on, on an e-staff as well like I was really pushing to have a banker that was a customer of ours and because Goldman had never been a customer, I'd been trying to get them as a customer and they hadn't done it. But in the end, we caved. I don't know why we caved, but um, that was my only disappointment. Is, is like, I didn't feel like they should have got it. Um, but they were great to work with. And then on the roadshow, it was uh, Greg, uh, our CEO, myself and our CFO. Yeah. And it was, it was really weird because everyone talks about the roadshow being exhausting. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, it's three cities every day and we do the, these meetings. I got to say, and I think maybe, and this sounds a bit gratuitous, but I think we were working too hard because when we went on the roadshow, it was like a holiday, right? <laughs> it was great. We, you know, it's the first time flying around in a private jet and, you know, you, you literally land, you go to a meeting. The meeting is great because you, you're selling yourself. I love, I loved selling the company. I loved it. It just like gave me energy. And, you know, our numbers are great. So, and Matt was a superb CFO, so he could just articulate um, to you know the, to Wall Street exactly how it worked and why it was better. And, and Greg was just uh, like a great CEO to, to represent the company as a public company. He, he's very tuned to that sort of investor relations, and he's very analytical. They, they liked him as a, as a CEO. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to do the vision bit and and tell them why it works, why it's different, and why this this is going to go on. Um, and frankly, it was great. Like, it, it was, yeah, it was a bit, you know, two weeks of that was a bit, actually, I missed the first week because so I had pneumonia. So I had pneumonia and then I, I flew out on the second set of meetings. 
And, um, but it was, it was fantastic. It was a great experience. So I don't know why people complain about it. We remember laughing about it saying, wow, people think this is difficult. We've been doing this all wrong for so long. <laughs> Fair point. There were also sources that reported you could have actually raised the share price for the initial price. You started at $17. Sources said you could have gone to 20 and even raised more money. Yeah. Does that bother you or any feelings about that? That, that should bother every founder. Right. I think the whole IPO process, and we, we, this is probably not the right podcast to, to talk about this, but because there's many more investor-related ones. But I, I think the IPO process for founders and for companies is not great at all. It's very cumbersome. Um, there's a lot of value taken off the table by the banker with very little upside, right? And the reason why they, they compress the price at the last minute is because they, the banker is doing deals with, with the, the hedge funds, yeah. right? And so suddenly they're getting a discount because they introduced them, but these hedge funds would buy in anyway, right? For a lot of companies, like, because all they care about is the metrics and the, uh, and the market, that's really what they care about. Right. And as long as those two are, are strong, then you're going to get investors and they're going to be long-term investors. And I, and I don't think the bank adds enough value. But what it does do is erodes value for the, the founders and, and you know, the key stakeholders because they take their money first. They take their six or seven million, you know, and you're only raising a hundred million. So they're taking six yeah. to 10%. And, and, it's, and it's also, you don't need to go public. You could just, raise private money and you don't take the same hit like it's, right. it's just a weird model um so you know i kind of like the the notion of SPACs right now as this alternate model because that that ipo model works for some companies but it's not going to work for everyone so having alternate ways to raise public capital is pretty interesting and of course the direct listings have been exactly. really interesting for consumer companies i don't think it's much harder for um uh, non-consumer companies to do direct listings because it's a lot to do with brand awareness. Makes sense. So then let's focus on the time after the IPO. Uh, so you basically came back from your holiday, as you called it. Yeah. Um, just to take a step back and give people some context, um, I researched some numbers and I think you stated that more than 45% of the global top 500 companies actually used Moosoft. Uh, you had offices in 12 different countries, more than 1,400 employees, and also a, an annual revenue of almost $300 million in 2017. Mm -hmm. Your goal was then after the IPO to go to $1 billion in revenue, but then something else happened. Your long-term partner and also investor Salesforce approached you one year after. Yep. How did that happen? Well, it, was, uh, it, it all happened very quickly, and um, we didn't really see it coming, right? So we... So 2017 was great. We were operating as a, a public company for the first time. We did, we got a few quarters under our belt and then we got to company kickoff. So something we did every year was we'd fly everyone from everywhere into um, San Diego and we'd have the, a full company meetup. So the management meetup would happen five days before and then we'd have five days with everyone. And the purpose of that, that meetup was to get everyone aligned for the year ahead, but also to break down all the cross-functional issues that were happening right. throughout the year. It's like a great way just to, you know, get one together and fix these things or have a plan to fix them. And most people think that's insane. Like, why would you fly, you know, 1,500 people from all around the world, put them in a hotel? But we got so much done. And like I said, it's a bit of a complicated business. So 
removing as much hurdles as you can so that you can start the year with the right direction was was super important. And that that whole kickoff was about well, with the whole organization was about getting to a billion in revenue. Actually, for the management team, especially with the executive team, it was like I think we already have line of sight to a billion. What do we need to do to get a ten billion? And it's a weird thing to say, but subscription businesses, what actually happens is you you know you land accounts and they're they're worth a certain amount, but the accounts grow over time. And then suddenly the renewal business is bigger than the net new business. Now you've got to be careful. You've got to keep feeding the, the net new so that you can, you know, you complete the, the cycle. But what it meant was is that we had a line of sight to a billion in revenue in two years anyway, without doing any sales. Yeah. So it was just really focused on, okay, how do we make customers successful? And then how do we, you know, how do we who are we going to sell to next? Um, but as the team were like, that's done. We like we can take our hands off the the steering wheel at this point, and that will happen, and it and it has happened. Um, and we started thinking about what do, what kind of company does it take for Mulesoft to be like a ten billion dollar revenue company? And um, you know, there's a couple of things going on. One is you know you've got to think about your product and who buys it, and and you look at market penetration and uh, account penetration. And we realized, well, even doing what we're doing, we can probably get to five. Right? And then we've got to think about the next five um, by expanding the product suite, expanding the customer base. I had um, uh, one thing. I'm going to go back to pre-IPO just for a second. Mm-hmm. Sure. So as we were preparing for pre-IPO, because it's very important to what happened next, um, I looked at all the companies that had gone IPO. Mm-hmm. So I looked at Box. I looked at Cloudera. I looked at uh, Talend. I looked at a, a, you know Barracuda Networks, a bunch of them. And what I noticed is most of them, ServiceNow and, and Workday, of course, most of them sort of plateaued. They came out, they, they got to about a two billion in, in market cap, and then they petered out. They just, they, you know, they, they were having a hard time growing and they, they stalled for 18 months or more. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, how do we not stall here? Like, what do we need to do to make sure um, when we come out, we've got so much more to talk about that we just keep. The, the, the nose going upwards. And I came up with this uh, um, really new category concept called application networks, right? And I just thought about, okay, what happens 10 years from now when there's so much software and there's so much connections that the human element within those connections breaks down as well? And so I defined this concept of application networks, which is essentially a layered model for security, for connectivity, for management and intelligence, right? I won't go into all, but it, it, it laid out basically all the things, all the areas we should probably look at investing in in the mm-hmm. next three to five years to get to a point where we, we end up becoming really this network. In the same way Cisco was the network for computers and Facebook was the network for people, we were going to be the network for applications. And I think about that for a second. Right. It's not run like that. That's, that's completely different to the way things are done right now. And I still love this idea, and I'm, I actually invest. My thesis for investing is based on this concept. And um, I laid this out, and usually I get loads of friction, uh, and people are like, "Well, can I go try it?" They all looked at me, and went, "This, this is it. This is what we should go do next." And so what I did was we got a year and a half of putting that strategy into place before we went IPO. So post IPO, 
we had loads of runway because we knew where we were going. We weren't going to run out of product. We weren't going to run out of direction. We knew what we were communicating to customers about how to go bigger. And so we had the groundwork. We didn't need to go and think about new product direction or anything. We just had to figure out, okay, how do we build it? What do we build first? Mm-hmm. And um, um, and what customers are going to need in the next you know, two to five years. So we did all this legwork. And we we set this the tone for the year with the team that, that you know we we're going to get to just under we, I can't remember what the number was now I probably shouldn't close it but we were going to get to a revenue number that seemed insane but we could do it and then right out of the back after we'd spoken to the whole company about we were you know we're independent we're going to go and do this Salesforce calls and they have suddenly realised how important it is to do what we do right for a transformation. Finally, someone. <laughs> yeah. And and basically, it was our, you know, a bit of our hard moment for the exec team that they kept hearing their customers talking about the biggest getting factor for their transformation was no longer the front of the business because Salesforce were doing a you know, decent job of managing that, but they couldn't get their data out of the legacy systems. They just didn't, they couldn't find a way to do it. And we were by far the best at doing that. And the light bulb went off for them is that if they were to do transformation, they actually had to do the front office and the back office. They couldn't just do one and, and hope the other one gets figured out. And that's when they came to us. And, um, you know, Greg took the the first meeting and he then, we had an, like an e-staff meeting and um, he said, look, uh, they've come with this. They, they're very serious. They actually really put a number on the table, uh, which was the, you know, $37 per share. And we're like, wow, okay. Um, and it was interesting. We all sat in silence for a few minutes. And then he said, thing is, if I say no to this, I have a shareholder responsibility to explain why. Like I have a fiduciary responsibility as an executive of a public company. And, and, I, and I'm, he said, I'm having a hard time figuring out reasons why we can say no to this other than just that we want to keep going. Right. And um, the next person to jump in was Simon. Simon said, I think this would be a good thing. He, he, he immediately saw that the rocket fuel of Salesforce's reach into organizations was exactly what we needed to, mm-hmm. to take our next step. Basically, Salesforce are like five years ahead of us in terms of engaging the CEO, helping the CEO understand why integration was important. We had to go through all of that and we hadn't done it yet. And I was I was probably the the person that took the longest to come around. Mm. Um, it took me about four or five days, and then eventually I said, "Okay, I I think we have to do this. I think it's I actually thought it'd be good for employees um, as well uh, because there's a bit of an outcome, right? You know, otherwise you're just always on this, this. I mean, I guess you could sell stock at that point, but that kind of bump made a big difference to anyone who's holding stock. And we just got comfortable that. If Salesforce could honor our um, sort of Swiss Army knife nature, i.e., we connect everything, we're, we're a neutral country in, in the land of applications, um, that we can make it work. And we just, and we told them, look, you've got to do diligence in three weeks. This cannot disrupt our business because mm-hmm. we're on a tear, we're doing really well. Um, and you've got to convince us that, that we can remain um, agnostic to technology because our two biggest concerns was would customers start to think that we're going to go cloud only because on-premise was so important? And the other one was 
that we're not an integration platform for Salesforce, but for everything. And they, to their credit, they did an amazing job of, and it was hard for them. They, they didn't really get it. And it took them a while to understand why it was so important to look at the world we were looking at, the way we were. Mm -hmm. But they did. They turned the corner and, and it's probably been one of the best acquisition, acquisitions to date, I think. Awesome. And I also wonder what role did the money part play in there? You said that $37 per share, which then resulted in a transaction of $6.5 billion yeah. of actually selling the company. So what role did the money part play in, you know, reaching a conclusion to sell or not to sell? Uh, well, it's, it's not the money, it's the shareholders. So you have to explain to shareholders why you wouldn't have taken that price, which was like 21x, you know, <laughs> forward-looking revenues, That's... which today looks normal in the current market, but back then wasn't normal, right? Um, and we would have had a hard time. We'd had a bunch of lawsuits, I think, the employees necessarily wouldn't have had to know about it, but you know, if a lawsuit happened, then they would have. Um, so I, I think it did place a factor. I I think we could have continued. Um, I would like to have continued, but I also realized I think net for everyone it was the right thing to do, mm -hmm. right? Both from a um, you know employee, definitely shareholder, um, definitely exec team. Um, I just. I won't disclose too much. There was, there was a, I think there was a couple of people that needed it to have a, an end at some point. Right. And actually, it was better for me to have an end as well, I've realized, looking backwards. Okay. Um, but, I, you know, it was hard. It, that was actually another hard period of my life. Six months after that, I, it was very hard to sort of get motivated. I didn't want to, what to do next. And, and that's a whole other story. But I think it was the right thing to do. And, I, and I, to Salesforce's credit... I think we're actually executing even better under their under their um, mothership, if you like. It's um, it's a pretty incredible company. Like I'm not a Salesforce fanboy, and and I, you know, from the outside it looks great. With the inside, it looks pretty good. Um, but it's they managed it really well. Awesome. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, we talked about leaving the CTO role before, so now leaving your company to a certain degree and selling the whole thing, that must have been a whole other emotional level that you needed to make a decision there. Yeah, it was. And I, I remember addressing the whole company and explaining that to them, that it, it, this wasn't easy. And I'm, you know, I'm 51, 49 on this right now. And it, obviously over time, I became more positive on it as, as we engaged more with Salesforce. Right. Um, uh, but it, yeah, it was hard and it, you know, what I realized that the things I was finding hard about it was, you know, I guess let, let go of it, something that I, you know, you built and, and that's, that's quite hard, but that's also a new beginning. It's not an ending necessarily. True. Um, the other thing is, I, I, you know, I realized a lot of my identity was wrapped up in that company. And so you have to go reforge your identity again, which is yeah. kind of weird. It's, you know, it's like just Jeff Bezos left Amazon. He'd be, I don't know. I, I just don't think you can do it, right? It's yeah. like, how how do you stop at this point? You just keep going and then die on the job one day. Um, so I'm young enough where I can start again, and um, and yeah, that's I, you know I just spent the last year and a half doing what I said I'd do if that ever happened, which is spend more time with family, reprioritize everything, so more around only do things I enjoy. Um, only spend time with people I like spending time with or, you know, my family and friends. Um, and 
stay connected, right? I think that's the probably my three things at the moment. And in what way has that actually changed you? Uh, also as a person with, the, you know, of course, the money coming from the sale, but now also having suddenly much more time available. So what do you actually do with that? Uh, amazingly, I still keep quite busy. I'm not as busy at, at all. And, and the good thing is everything in my schedule is movable, right? So I, I no longer have this, oh, I've got to go and do this work or travel right. for a week and let someone else in my family, you know, let someone down. So definitely I've architected my life around that concept where I'm not full-time. I will have some really busy days that mm-hmm. I, and I like getting that feedback loop of having a busy day, but then I can easily take two days off. I'll give you an example. I'm going to um, the mountains in January, January to March. I'm going to work from there, but I, I will ski every day there's good snow, right? Nice. So, And everyone on my team knows that's my priority while I'm up there. Yeah and knows that we can get things done you know around that and so that's the benefit i suppose of of having more time and money um and i i guess i i reflect a lot more right Mm -hmm. weirdly when you're building a company you you take so much for granted and over the last year i've I've learned to sort of take uh, a step back and and you know take some of the learnings and and then i actually really enjoy imparting those learnings on found with founders um, so, you know, why I'm enjoying investing so much is because I get to spend time with founders and at least give them a perspective of how things could be done compared to maybe how they're thinking about it. Right. You know, when we talk about putting or setting the bar high, I mean, doing an IPO per se is already a very high bar. Then selling the company after IPO for $6.5 billion is another super high bar. Can you put the bar even higher now? Yeah, I, I guess I think you have to start on a different scale. Okay. Right. It's a bit like authors that write a best-selling book, right? <laughs> you don't stop writing a book. You know, the next one maybe not be the bestseller, but you don't stop writing. Um, it's uh, you know, for me, my bar at the moment is definitely quality time with family, right, and uh, spending a lot more time with everyone in my family, but definitely my my. I have two daughters, um, and we have a great time together. And you know, they're getting older. There's going to be a point where they don't want to hang out with me, so I'm just really enjoying <laughs> it right now. Um, and you know, for, well, friends would have been more of a priority this year. It's been a bit difficult because of COVID. Um, exercise, sort of, you know, exercise, mental health, um, self improvement stuff. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to like live a bit more normally, actually. Yeah. I'm doing it knowing that I'm probably going to launch myself back into something one day, but I won't do that um, if it jeopardizes some of my core values around, you know, family and and enjoyment, right? So we'll see. Was there any big trade-off that you had to make, you know, back in the days with MuleSoft? Because you worked a lot and very intensely. If you say that doing the IPO process felt like vacation, I can only imagine this must have been crazy work days. Yeah. So did you jeopardize or also had to find uh, a balance with other parts of your life to make that happen? Yeah, I didn't do a great job of that. I, I did work on it though. So I wasn't one of these people that just abandoned everything. Um, so, uh, but I'm, you know, my my wife is now ex-wife. So that, that's maybe one, one indicator. Um, but even when the, the girls were young, I, when I was in San Francisco, I'd always be home by six o'clock, mm-hmm. four nights a week, right? Yeah. The caveat there is I still had to travel about 25% of the time, which is quite a lot 
um, and it was put a, put a strain on on the family a bit. I don't think the girls noticed as much because I was there quite a lot. I was always there on weekends. I didn't do any social trips, so I didn't do any sort of I didn't play golf or do things on my own on a Saturday. I'd spend time with them, um, and you know, at the time it felt like there was very little space for me as a person. But I felt well, you know, that space for me is going to the company, so I, you know, I have to invest in the family. I could have found a better balance, I think. Um, and I'd never do it that way again. But, it, you know, it's much easier to understand that coming out of it than when you're going into it, right? It's, you know, you just do things a bit differently. But um, I think I would have had more outside counsel. Um, I should have had either a coach or a therapist or both, probably both would have been good, um, just to sort of help me process some of the stuff that was going on mm-hmm. because I was so laser focused on on MuleSoft that, and I, I get... Like I'm, I'm in things a thousand percent when I'm in them, and and I think I need people to pull me out of that every now and again. Makes sense. Now, in 2019, you also founded Dig Ventures, uh, your own VC, basically, where you also want to do things a bit differently. I think on your website you state that you want to ease the founder journey to make founders more successful with less stress. So is that also somehow you know shaped by your own experience that you went through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's it's right there. Um, like make less mistakes, less stress, because it's it's stressful, and and you can over rotate and spoil other things in your life, or you know at least neglect them for a while. Um, so the idea of Dig uh, is essentially, I mean, we're investing in B two B SaaS companies, so we're quite narrow in focus compared to most VCs, um, and the reason for that is because we want to. We want to redefine what value add is, right? So every VC is well, value add VC. <laughs> we can make intros. We'll help you with hiring. It's like that stuff, especially intros, doesn't usually make a massive difference. Hiring can help, um, but what we spend time with our founders is is really decoding the journey that they're on, right? So understanding how to build a company with the right culture that they they want to achieve. What what, and it's not telling them what to do. It's just giving them frameworks to think about how to build this stuff. Um, how to how to think about sales, how to make, create compelling events for companies that won't immediately buy your product, which is almost none of them. Uh, how to go from founder-led sales to a sales team. Like these transitions are super hard, right? And even thinking about pricing and, and go-to-market strategies, I, I love that stuff. That's what, you know, We sp- I spent years of my life thinking about this. And it's not just thinking about MuleSoft, but I looked at other businesses all the time to figure out how they worked. And I became a bit of a, like a business model nerd, right? I, mm. you know, because um, I was also thinking about APIs and monetization as well. Uh, so it's really injecting that knowledge into a smaller set of companies. Um, and so Dig this year has really been like an experiment. Not, not really experiment because we've invested in real companies, real money, but it's been a, it's been a prove the model, which is, can can we invest in these companies? Can we add enough value? And can we do it in a scalable way so that I don't have to be the one imparting the knowledge? So that's the other thing, right? It's like, I shouldn't have to be in the room for the these conversations to take place. Because actually, conversations with me or with any other you know founder that, that has some insight are fascinating for like 30 minutes, right? They're like, oh my God, that's such a great conversation. He's done so much or she's done such an amazing job. The way she thought about it was incredible. But then you walk away and there's not a lot actionable there. All there is is, is um, inspiration, which inspiration is great, but 
what we're trying to do is is provide inspiration and action, right? So just helping people think through these things. And, you know, building companies is even, you know, a round, you know, investment strategy. I'm, I'm learning in Europe. Um, it's not clear to people how to think about investment strategy, i.e. how to pull the right investors, who to bring in, when. Um, there's lots of bad practices in the industry because there's so much money. Um, and, I, you know, one thing our founders say time and again, whether we invest in them or not, they always say that our, our conversations are the highest value and we give them the most valuable feedback. And that's probably the other part of it, which is we just want to make sure it's really transparent, like how we think about things, why we went with someone, why we didn't. And yeah. it seems to be quite refreshing. Again, it's stuff you can't really uh, put down in, in, a, in a sort of benefits of working with dig ventures, but it's, it's just the way we operate. Right. How do you actually make sure that you can also transfer your knowledge and experience if you're not in the room? Do you have any like standardized processes and templates that you give to your companies or how, how does yeah, that we actually do. work? So we, we have a set of workshops. So okay. a lot of things I just mentioned, we've run, you know, we've developed workshops in, in the last 18 months for um, developing a sales process, uh, creating compelling events in, in you know, sales uh, situations, okay. uh, founder led to sales team sales mm-hmm. um, and establishing a great culture. Um, and we're starting to do more on hiring because hiring was a massive part of, of MuleSoft. And I'm starting to realize that I've taken a lot for granted what we learned over the years around what makes a good hiring process, how you need to think about it, how you think about candidate hiring versus just your website, which people never think about, but it's really important. Um, and so we just start capturing that knowledge. And I don't run any workshops. I have a team um, that actually runs the workshops. And... Um, it works because not everything needs to be at the level that I look at the world. Most founders actually need stuff much lower down. And um, who's best to do that? Well, just people that have really lived it once but are still young and still hungry and still in that mode. So we built out a, a network of about 30 to 40 professionals in different parts of organizations that aren't running companies that actually work in other companies but have done things that are interesting that, that we connect them to our founders to, to, to relay. And awesome. that's I think that's really um, a bit of a game changer for some of these companies. Let's quickly go back to your claim, you know, of making the founder journey less stressful. Now, looking back to your journey, do you think that this is even possible and an aspiring thing to do? Or is it part of the process of actually building a successful company to the massive scale as you did with MuleSoft? Yeah, so there's always going to be stress because I think any founder is going to put themselves under a ton of pressure to be successful. That's kind of what you're doing. By nature of founding a company, you're not saying, I want to hide away here. You're saying, I want to go and change something, right? So there's already, it's already going to attract somebody who's going to keep themselves under enough pressure that helping them figure out some of the other stuff that people struggle with will make it a bit easier. It doesn't, I don't think it detracts from their hunger or, uh, it's basically just saying, look, there's there's actual playbooks or there's frameworks to think about this. This is this is actually no different than some of the material you find online, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is the material you find online is usually very watered down, um, very generic because it's trying to reach a broadest audience possible. We've just narrowed our thesis into companies where our knowledge maps very well to what they're trying to do, yeah. and. And that's why it works. And, and the other thing is, you know, I will start 
writing this stuff up and blogging about it next year because we wanted to go through a year of doing it before we started communicating it. Nice. Um, but the reality is whatever you read, you know what it's like, you get about 30% of the meaning from reading it. You actually need someone in the room to help you piece it together and map it to your organization. And But I guess hope that what we can do in Europe is, is start spurring those conversations, maybe getting other other VCs to sort of adopt the same approach and add more value than just trying to make introductions, which often don't amount to much. Fair point. So we know that you still keep a pretty busy schedule. We know that you're uh, involved and invested with uh, Dig Ventures, but you're also involved in the B app, a consumer app, something new to yeah. you. So can you talk a bit more about this streaming platform that you're uh, involved there? Uh, yes. So uh, B app is really a, um, a post-COVID response to uh, consuming live events. We've, we've started with music, but essentially what it allows users to do is to engage with a, a live stream in a much more um, interactive way than just watching something on YouTube. And the idea actually was born out of festival streaming, that, that most people can't get to festivals. Most people can't see an Ariana Grande concert, right? Yeah. Um, you can watch it you know, later on, on YouTube or a snippet on Facebook, but to actually dial in, be there when the event's happening and have some interactivity, at least with the other you know, virtual members of, of that concert, yeah. there's nothing there that does this. And so we started there and then, of, of course, uh, con concerts and festivals got killed with COVID. And we just twist, uh, we, we switched the model to, okay, what about just allowing anyone to stream anything in a live, uh, a live format um, and allowing people to engage that way, especially since we can't, we can't go anywhere, right? Okay. And so we, we created the platform first just to, to share streams, allow people to, to dial in. What we're doing now is really exciting is, is that we've created this thing called watch parties. And it's basically like Zoom calls, but where it's, you, you can have up to 16 people in the video chat, all chatting, so your friends can enjoy a stream. So, um, and those streams can be anything from, you know, uh, bedroom artists that, that we, we do a lot of bedroom artist stuff on there. But we had a sponsor, um, Coca-Cola, for the first two months of the launch of the app. And we had 180 acts. And so... We also had professional, everyone from uh, uh, Katy Perry to Jazzy Jeff to DJ Khaled, for example. Nice. Um, and you could dial in. And what you can do now is do that with just a split group of friends. So rather than having this, this big sort of chat room and, and stuff happening all the time because it was too active, we've created these watch parties where you can invite friends. It's a private chat. You can all be remote, but you're all in the same room. You're all watching the same thing. Um, and what's really cool about this, which we will know early next year whether it works or not, is you can watch your watch party. So other people can publish what they're watching. <laughs> yeah. So that you know, you see the commentary on TV like Google Box and stuff like that. Right. Um, you can watch people watching the stream as well. And I think that's gonna create a new level of sort of internet sort of commentary um, that you do see on YouTube, but it's very much around somebody watching a video and then recording it, this will all be live. Nice. And the, the key focus here is rather than having recorded content, we really want to focus on live. We, we mm. just, um, there's something more magical about live events that just, like if you can't be there, what's the next best thing you can do? Well, you can, you can dial in live and actually watch it live and see it before anyone else. 
You can buy merchandise um, while it's happening. And of course, where the music industry is now, they need a new revenue stream. Comedy can go the same way. I, I really like the idea of uh, sort of online shopping, like QVC style demos and selling the, the, the product through the, the platform as well. Nice. So we're, you know, we're early days, but it, it's, a, it's a fun, completely separate to what I normally do um, uh, company. And um, yes, it, it's, it's totally different. And, I, and I'm, I'm, it's, it's the way I keep myself sharp and um, entertained, I think. So it's also really a new learning experience for you to go exactly. B2C instead of B2B as you used to. Yes, exactly. And the company has, has an exec team, has a CEO. I, you know, I, I function on the board. So um, I'm close to, uh, close to the team. But I, again, you know, I can't start a company right now. I don't really have the time for it. But to be really, but I'm, not, I'm a very active board member. So I'm, I'm you know, talking to them weekly and, and um yeah, it's, it's, it's a good middle ground for me at the moment. Sounds great. So before we wrap up this episode, we are also very curious to hear about your resources and gadgets that you can recommend. So are there any blogs, podcasts, or also gadgets that you use yourself on a regular basis that you can recommend to our listeners? Yeah, so I obviously I'm doing a lot of investing. And I, I've, I've actually been angel investing in the last five years and, and equity investing at the same time. So I've developed this sort of hobby of investing. And... Um, and I like markets, I like macroeconomics, so all that's very interesting right now. Uh, so podcast-wise, I've been very much focused there. There's a couple of really good podcasts. One, one is called Invest Like the Best, and it has a good mix of founders and investors and, and, and stories. Um, I like that a lot. I haven't done that yet, but if they're listening, I'd love to. Um, but that's a good one. There's... Um, there's another one that's just been recommended to me that sounds like it's going to be very addictive, which is called My First Million or To The First Million, something like that. And it basically it's like two guys sitting there talking about very random startup ideas mm -hmm. and how they get to their first million. <laughs> that seems like a really good 20-minute, you know, 30-minute right. uh, um, podcast. Uh, Toys-wise, um, what? so I guess the only thing I've really bought this year um, – is I, I completely reinvested in my my Zoom game, right? Because you're on Zooms all the time and right. uh, or you're being recorded. So I, like a lot of people have done, I've totally kitted my, you know, I've got like the uh, the Sony A6000 camera. Um, I've got the key light. I've got the Elgato dock. I've got the, the, the Rode podcast uh, microphone. Nice. And... So that's been kind of fun, just getting that all set up and, and thinking a bit more about your image that you portray when you're <laughs> on, on Zoom. And it's pretty hilarious, the difference from where I started to where it is now. I can imagine. It looks like a, um, you know, this looks like a, you know, what everyone looks like on Zoom. And this looks like a, a skincare commercial. It's, yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> so those are the things I invested. I think in 2021, I'm going to start looking at quantified self again, like quantified self with action. Um, so I'm going to start measuring things. I don't know what's spurring me to do it. It might be just be I have too much time on my hands. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's more to do with the mental and physical health. Mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, you know yourself, you feel what you know, and, and you can monitor your sleep and things. But um, is there any deeper insight? Is there things that you do? Because humans are terrible habitual creatures. We do stuff. And people people can tell us a thousand times that, 
that's not a good idea. And, but we do it because we say we like it or because of that. And, and really what it is, we have some knee-jerk reaction for, to do something for some reason. And I'm wondering if, if quantified data can help unearth some of that stuff. Yeah. Nice. Just as a little side project, not, not, a, not a business. Okay. And to wrap up, we have some rapid fire questions for All you. Right. I either give you a selection of two or three options or a short question, and you can answer in one or two sentences. Okay. Are you ready? Right. I'm ready. Let's go. United States, United Kingdom, or Switzerland? UK. Why? I'm British. Fair point. B2B or B2C? B2B. That's where but, I, but I love B2C. Like okay. B2C is like this, this, this enigma. Um, B2B is, is very predictable for me. Right. Being a founder or being an investor? Oh, founder. Okay. Why? Um, I don't see myself as an investor. Like, I'm investing to stay relevant and be connected, but mm -hmm. I, I don't get a, um, you know, I don't need to make money that way or, uh, and, and there's not enough depth in investing to be, it's a good hobby. Like it's, it's fun. It's good. To, I actually like talking about it, mm -hmm. um, but more on the macro side. And um, I like, you know, being a founder is just a great journey. And where do you go to think? Uh, I hit my bike or I, I run. Good. Uh, Android or iOS? iOS never never got my head around Android. Just still can't do it. Although I had a, I'm gonna just, I know this is quick fire. I had a bad experience at an Apple Store recently, and it made me think. Okay. Could I get off all the the top five players? And I realized you probably could create a much better phone experience with like a Nokia. Yeah. Like you're on Android, but like get rid of Google. Use you know, get Proton Mail, Swiss company, yeah. and Superhuman together. Make that for email client and try and replace as many pieces as you can and still have a really great experience. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting thought project for me over Christmas. Is it like, nice. can you really do it? Let's see. Yeah. Were you happier in 2017 or are you happier now? I'm happier now. Why? Uh, I think I've got much more balance in my life. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, you know, I spend more time with family. Um, I connect more with friends. I just have more time. Like, you know, I, I don't have to get up at seven. I still get up at eight. But like, I exercise more. I just have more time. I don't worry about things as much. If I find I'm worrying about something, I can actually spend time to think about why I'm worried about it and, and you know, get it off of my plate. Mm -hmm. Whereas then you just had this dragnet of stuff that you're like running this way <laughs> with this company and everything else, all the personal stuff all being dragged along with you. It was, it was much harder. Yeah, understandable. And the last one for you today, what makes you smile? Uh, my daughters. They, they're just, they're hilarious, I, you know. Um, they make me smile. Um, in my family, we do a family quiz every, every Saturday. Oh, cool. Always smiling at that. Um, I have a lot to smile about it, it and it's, um, it's more to do with slowing down. Like, I think a lot of people think that when you have an exit, what's great about having an exit is, like, you don't need to worry about money anymore. Well, the reality is anyone who's working in tech probably doesn't really worry about money, even if you're working with someone else because your salary's high. Mm -hmm. um, and having more doesn't actually equate to uh, more happiness. Obviously, we know this, but yeah. it, I think people still are like, yeah, but, you know, you can go and buy that boat. It's like, do you want a boat, though? Like, really? Like, is that yeah. because whatever you buy is something that you have to maintain and look after, right? Yeah. So... 
And then if you start hiring people to, to maintain these things, then what's the point? Right. Right. So you, the, I, you know, for me, I wish I understood this better, not because of the exit, but because I would have lived life a bit differently, but balance makes a much bigger difference. And um, I've just been able to afford myself the time to find balance, which has been great. Awesome. I think that's a perfect statement to end this episode. Ross, thank you so much for taking the time and to share your impressive journey with us. We wish you all the best with the future projects. Also in the B2C sector, we're curious to see what yep. you are cooking there. And thanks again for taking the time. Great. Excellent. Thank you. If you thought this episode was great, why not share it with a friend? Or better yet, share it with your future friends by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. The more our Swisspreneur community grows, the easier your chit-chat will be at our next networking event.